So last week, we set out on a rather ambitious journey, and that is to work our way through the entire book of one of the biographies of Jesus that are in the New Testament, the book that we know as the book of Luke. And why are we doing this? Well, the answer is in a sentence behind me. It's not there right now. It's the sentence that you might have seen a moment. There it is, that sentence in the bold face right there. This is our current elders' best articulation of what we're convinced Jesus wants us to be doing as a congregation right now, and that is connecting people to a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And so, in order to get to know this Jesus better... Over the next nine months, we are going to thoroughly immerse ourselves in Luke's biography. We're going to read it really closely. You might even say that we're pulling out our highlighters, literally and figuratively. And if you weren't here last week, that means you didn't get your special fall 2018 North Creek highlighter slash pen made, of course, from recycled paper because this is the Northwest. If you didn't get that, or if you didn't get the bookmark, which is the schedule that we'll be reading Luke, both of those are available back on the Welcome Center, the information table back there in a basket. Please grab one and bring it with you. So we started last week. We started this nine-month journey in Luke chapter 4. If you were here, we explained that we're saving chapters 1 through 3 for Christmas. That's Luke's Christmas story. And we started as Luke tells it in chapter 4, in this scene where Jesus first bursts upon the public scene, and he does so by reading a passage from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And it's a passage in which Isaiah foresees a coming day when God will send a releaser of captives. And then Jesus sits down and says, that's me. And so, What we're doing for these first 12 Sundays of this series, each week we're going to look at an episode and we're going to trace how in that episode, how in fact in every encounter that people have with Jesus, in some way or another, Jesus releases a captive. We're going to hear one of those stories in a moment. Nathan alluded to it. It is the story of how one man was released from the captivity of paralysis, of a paralyzed body. And as we'll discover, there's a bunch going on in this story, a whole lot of moving parts, but Luke is a master storyteller. In fact, this morning, in this passage, Luke is going to deploy an expert storytelling technique. It is a technique that a skilled narrator might use in a novel or in a movie or on a TV show. And it's the technique of wrapping up a scene by having a couple of onlookers make some sort of summarizing comment about the action that just took place. Now, I'm convinced that in this case, in this passage, Luke intends this summarizing comment to come with a little bit of wry humor. And I guess it's probably the humor that got me thinking about a somewhat lowbrow example of this technique of the summarizing comment, and I'm thinking of the Muppet Show characters Statler and Waldorf. (laughs) Do you remember them? 
If you know The Muppet Show, in all 120 episodes over the five-year run, after almost every sketch, every scene, there were these two curmudgeons that were up in a box seat up there, and they turned to each other, and they gave some disparaging comment about the scene that had just taken place. I grabbed a bunch of these off of YouTube and compiled them together so you know what I'm talking about. What was that? It's called the medium sketch. The medium sketch? Yeah, it wasn't rare, and it certainly wasn't well done. Now, <laughs> well, that's talent. An opera singer who tap dances and sings cowboy songs. I wonder if there's anything she isn't good at. Yes? Choosing what show to be on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you never know when something funny is going to happen on this show. Did something funny happen? Yeah. You'd never know it. <laughs> Boy, he's really good, that Rudolf Nuria. Uh, Nuray, you know I should really learn to pronounce his name. Uh, don't bother now. After this show, he'll probably change it. <laughs> that was a great number. I don't care what you say. I thought it was dumb. Maybe you're right. <laughs> oh. What's wrong with you? Uh, it's either this show or indigestion. I hope it's indigestion. Why? It'll get better in a little while. <laughs> What do you suppose they call that? A novelty act? I don't know, but it wasn't too bad. Well, that's a novelty. <laughs> what was that? That was very strange. It was very weird. It was peculiar. It was kind of amusing. Yes, it was rather funny. It was incredibly funny. I loved it. Hilarious. <laughs> Okay, so now we are ready for this morning's episode. This is from Luke 5, 17 through 26. And like every Sunday, you are invited to pull the, the Bible out in the pew if you want to follow along. This morning I'm using a slightly different translation. That Bible is the New International Version. This is the New Revised Standard Version. Mostly it's the same, a few different words. This is the story of how one day some friends of a certain paralyzed man commit what one commentator calls intercessory vandalism. And they do it to help get their friend into proximity with the healing touch of Jesus. Like I said, the story takes some unexpected detours until we readers are left asking, what does true healing mean after all? Listen for God's word. One day, while Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. Just then, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, Who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you. Or to say, stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up before them. 
took what he had been lying on and went to his home glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. So Luke is a good enough narrator to know that a good scene needs a really good last line. It needs a clincher to sum up what happens. And as I said, I suspect, just like was the case for the creators of The Muppet Show, Luke intends us readers to chuckle a little bit with this line that he puts on the lips of the onlookers in that scene that day. It would make great television. The healed man charges out of the room, carrying his stretcher and singing, leaving the rest of the people looking at one another, not quite sure what to say. And then one of the Pharisees, who has this habit of always saying something, can only come up with the comically obvious observation, we have seen strange things today. Well, there's an understatement. They'd seen so many people show up to Jesus to see Jesus packing this house that the fire marshal had given up on his occupancy rules. They had seen a paralyzed man with friends so committed that they not only carried him from whatever village he came from, but they refused to give up when they couldn't get close to Jesus, and they used their best problem-solving skills and came up with a solution. And then they'd seen that paralyzed man skip out of the house with his stretcher. I bet that if in the middle of worship this morning, someone cut a hole right there, and as all of us stared up, and as debris and insulation was falling down, there was this stretcher with a person on it kind of jiggling and swinging as it was lowered, and it was suspended right there. I bet, after worship, when you got back in the car, even before you turned on the ignition, you'd turn to the family and you'd say, we have seen strange things today. Now, to be accurate, these friends' intercessory vandalism might not have been quite as serious as someone cutting a hole in our ceiling here in the sanctuary this morning. And that's because the standard first century Palestinian, Roman Palestinian home was built around a courtyard. And normally this courtyard was left open to the sky, but in this particular case, the homeowner seems to have put some sort of temporary roof over that courtyard, maybe some sort of tiles that could be easily removed. Even so, this is a bold and creative move on the part of this guy's friends, something that no one in the crowd was expecting that morning. Strange things indeed. But could it be that the comment on the lips of those onlookers that day, this quote that on the surface sounds like a Statler and Waldorf one-liner, could it be that it might in fact be a bit more profound than those who say it realize? You see, the Greek word that Luke uses here to mean strange things, it does mean strange things, but it also has a second more technical meaning, and it's a meaning that survives in an English descendant of this word, the word you see is paradoxa. Literally what they're saying, we have seen paradoxes today. And a paradox is a strange thing, yes, but it's not a strange thing like you'd see in a Dr. Seuss book. It is something that cuts against what we expect and what we thought we know, but that on closer inspection also proves to be true and meaningful. 
And I see in this passage three such paradoxes. I want to spend a moment puzzling over each. All right, the first is this rather jarring disconnect between what we assume this man needs and what Jesus offers him, at least at first. So there's these four verses of kind of setting up the story, and over those four verses of action, Luke gets us rooting for this guy's creative, persistent friends and this mission that they're on. After so much effort, we are ready for this guy to get healed. So there he is, finally, suspended through that hole, hanging right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. What? Is that some kind of cruel joke? Jesus, this guy needs healing, not forgiveness. It's like someone coming into the ER with appendicitis and being sent for aromatherapy. Forgiveness is fine, Jesus, but that's not what he needs. Or could it be that Jesus knows there's a kind of healing that's even more important? Could it be that while our physical bodies, our physical wholeness matters to God, and he was the one who created us in the first place and said, this is good. Could it be that God knows there's an even deeper and more profound woundedness inside? And that, yes, even more serious than severed bones or severed spines or severed neurons is the severed relationship that we have with our Creator. I'm not entirely sure that on any given day, many of us believe that. And the fact that most of us, as we're reading this story, we come to this point of the action and we say, what? And we feel like Jesus is somehow cheating this guy out of what he needs. That shows the extent to which we feel that forgiveness is relatively commonplace, even cheap. But physical healing, now there's something. The paradox here is not that Jesus declares physical healing worthless. No, the Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus healing people physically. It's just that in Jesus' perception of what matters most, there's something even more important than physical wholeness. And that day, Jesus offered this man that gift. Jesus released him from captivity even more insidious than his diagnosis. We have seen strange things today. But in narrating Jesus giving this man this offer, Luke puts a second surprising paradoxical twist into his story. I don't know if you caught it. There are plenty of healing stories in all four Gospels in which it is the ill person who says or does something that catches Jesus' attention and his sympathy. This isn't one of those stories. Here's what Luke tells us. It was when Jesus saw their faith, when he saw the faith of those persistent friends, that he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. What? Now, we could speculate that on that given day, there was more going on that Luke doesn't record. We might speculate that Jesus also looks into the heart of that man on the stretcher. But that's not how Luke tells the story. And our scripture is Luke's narrative, not really our own speculation. And Luke says it pretty bluntly. Jesus saw their faith and he said, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, we Protestants are the ones that most loudly insist that every person is solely responsible before God. No one can answer for you. Now, I believe that, but this text seems to present something that I think Scripture does from time to time, and that is it presents us what I would call an on the other hand. We are responsible before God, yes, but... On the other hand, none of us ever really show up before God on our own, alone, and under our own power. However you got here, that might have been last week, that might have been 50 years ago, most likely you were brought here by others. Think about it. Think about how you ended up in church. That might have been literally brought here by parents or grandparents or a caring neighbor who drove you. It might be figuratively who brought you here by caring friends who encouraged you and invited you. I think that's part of what we Presbyterians mean by this word predestination. That none of us really show up alone or completely by our own choice. Our lives are inextricably linked with those of the people around us. That is how God created us and put us in various communities and families. And what that means is that other people have a role in our healing. Other people have a role in our release from captivity just as we have a role in theirs. Healing, whether it is physical or spiritual, is ultimately not just ours, but it's something that we experience together as God's people, as a church, as a community of faith. And so for one another, each of us drags that stretcher to the next village. Each of us pulls off those tiles, lowers the ropes down. We are in this together. We have seen strange things today. The third paradox, last one, is that in this story, the Pharisees seem to get what most of us readers don't. That in the grand scheme of things, forgiveness is really a bigger deal than physical healing. In this story, it's not that the Pharisees don't believe in forgiveness. It's the opposite. For them, forgiveness is so sacred and it is so holy that only God would ever claim to pull it off and then only through an orderly system of obedience and sacrifice. So when Jesus poses this question, which is easier, I suspect that the Pharisees probably answer it differently than you or I would answer it. For us, it seems pretty straightforward. The logic of Jesus is this. Let me do this much harder thing to show you I can do the easy thing. And the harder thing is certainly the healing, right? Well, I don't think the Pharisees would see it that way. For them, the blasphemy is not that Jesus came to heal. It's that he claims to be able to forgive. That is the harder, more upsetting claim for them. And paradoxically, I think that the Pharisees are right. Even here in chapter 5, the shadow of the cross hangs over all of Luke's gospel. And because we know that whole painful story that Luke is going to tell, to have Jesus of all people say that forgiveness is easy wouldn't really make much sense. Forgiveness is not easy. Sin 
is the most intractable problem that humans face. It's a captivity that's even more debilitating than physical illness or disability. Think about it. Even on the human level, between people, to give or accept forgiveness can be the hardest thing on earth. That's also the case on the spiritual level in our relationship with God. I am convinced that for most people, the biggest obstacle to faith is not a scientific scruple or an intellectual scruple. It is a gut-level resistance to receiving God's forgiveness, to receiving God's grace. That's where most people stop. They, they can't do it. They can't wrap their minds around it. Either we think we're beyond it, that our sin is just too awful for God's mercy, or we think we'd rather get by without it. We don't want to humble ourselves to accept forgiveness that we haven't earned. And so, in this story, as is always the case throughout the Gospels, in healing this man physically, Jesus is pointing people's attention to a deeper, more profound, more costly, and ultimately more liberating sort of healing. Or to put this another way, Every time Jesus heals someone, he is pointing all of us to something even bigger and more earth-shaking going on. Healing is the evidence that in him the kingdom of God has burst into the world. People are restored to wholeness, not just in bodies, but outside and in. Restored to an integrity of flesh and spirit that God intends from the first chapters of Genesis. That's because in Jesus Christ, God is healing the cosmos itself. He's restoring this world to its intended wholeness. And we and our bodies are part of that. Reynolds Price was a critically acclaimed novelist. He was also a professor at Duke, an English professor. He was successful in every way until the day that he was told that there was an eight-inch tumor that had wrapped itself around his spine and that he had little, there was little chance for doctors to fully remove it and so they told him that he had at most 18 months to live. Price describes months of sickening treatments, the agonies of physical therapy, a variety of remedies that attempted to relieve his pain. He even began to pray and read the Bible, although he reports that he didn't find any quick relief from that. Until one day... He had a vision out of nowhere. He had a vision, caught him off guard. Now, he taught at a Methodist university, but by his own admission, he was little more than a part-time Protestant. But in this vision, Price saw himself at the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Jesus summoning him into the water, and they waded out together into the waves. And he writes, Jesus silently took up handfuls of water and poured them over my head and my back until water ran down my puckered scar. And then Jesus spoke once and said, Your sins are forgiven. And then he turned ashore, done with me. I, I came on behind him, thinking in standard greedy fashion, It's not my sins that I'm worried about, Jesus. So to Jesus receding back, I had the gall to call out, Am I also cured? And he turned to me and he faced me. No sign of a smile. And he finally said two words, that too. And then he climbed from the water, not looking around, really done with me. 
While Price's cancer did eventually diminish, he never experienced complete physical healing, and he used a wheelchair until his death in 2012. But before he passed away, looking back on this vision, he writes this. You might ask, Professor Price, what did you get out of that vision experience? Well, I am filled with gratitude. That vision erased any superstitious feeling that my sickness came as a punishment. For I heard Jesus say I was forgiven. The experience held me close to the bosom of God even when my illness threatened to tear me away. As I said, of those in the room that day, paradoxically, it was the Pharisees who guessed the full implications of this strange healing power this backwards, backwoods rabbi seems to have. God has come into the world in power, and the world is turned upside down. In Luke's gospel, and in his second volume of Acts, he will introduce us to some Pharisees who embrace this strange power, especially the Apostle Paul, but also many others who will choose to try and crush it. But in this scene, at least, here in chapter 5, Luke offers one last delightful paradox. As that man walks away carrying his stretcher, shouting praise to God, Luke tells us that everyone, everyone in the room, even those Pharisees, glorify God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. 